You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's up, everybody? Erica Gutsick Gibbon coming at you here as a guest mod on Modern Day Debate, where we are discussing evolutionary fitness today. I know both of these interlocutors quite well. They're both really great guys, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to be having. The general format is going to be each individual is going to get to introduce themselves, and then we're going to hop into 10-minute opens with around 50 minutes to an hour of open discussion followed by a Q&A. So you're going to want to tag at Modern Day Debate if you've got Super Chats, you want to ask either of these two debaters, very knowledgeable dudes. Um, and and that's kind of the, the gist of what we're doing today. So I've, I want to throw it to these guys, let them introduce themselves Neither of them are new to modern day debate, but for those of you who may be new in the audience, it may be helpful to hear about a little bit about their background. And additionally, you have to know their links are in the description. So whichever one of you wants to take it away first, by all means. So why don't you go ahead first, since you're also going to do the first um, opening. So we'll do you, me, you, me, then we'll just go to open. All right, Sal first. I'm Salvador Cordova and I'm a research assistant in the field of molecular biophysics. Prior to working in biophysics, I was a scientist and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. I have five science degrees, including two master's degrees, one in biology and one in physics from Johns Hopkins University. I plan to develop teaching materials for creationists. So I wanted to present my ideas to Dapper Dino this evening to solicit criticisms and to give my students a chance to hear the other side of the arguments. I want to thank Dapper also for giving me an opportunity to promote my work by participating in tonight's debate. Thanks to Praise and James for hosting the debate and Erica serving as moderator. I have some publications both in secular and creationist friendly venues on the topoisomerase II family of enzymes and also publications in population genetics. I have an unpublished preprint with my co-author, John Sanford, uh, on the beta-lactamase nylonase family of enzymes. I was a professing Christian most of my life, but I believe I was truly saved at age 15. I was raised in a Roman Catholic home and accepted evolution as it was taught to me in public schools and books. A couple of years after becoming a Christian, I rejected evolutionary theory because of the problem of complexity and consciousness, but I was an old earth creationist most of my life, and only relatively recently am I now a young earth and young cosmos creationist. Uh, tonight's debate will be for the nerds and probably free of drama. If you want drama, I can suggest a few channels, like say <laughs> Smoky Saint, but 
you can probably expect a debate that will put nerds in nerds heaven tonight. So thank you. That's, that is absolutely the truth. Couldn't have said it better myself, Sal. I know we're going to have a, a super civil and very riveting discourse just because I know these guys. And, uh, you know, apologies in advance to the audience. You're definitely going to want to have Google handy for some, of the, uh, for some of the more intense terminology that Sal may throw our way, which hopefully we'll get to hear some from, from, from him and Dapper with regards to their thoughts on, on some of the, the intricacies and minutia. So hit us up, Dapper. Introduce yourself. All right. Well, I'm Dapper Dino. Uh, you may recognize me from earlier debates I've done on this channel, as well as a few on other channels. Um, I have a YouTube channel that is mostly dedicated to um, sort of uh, responding to various young earth creationist claims, usually in the form of response videos. I also have a weekly show that this is actually displacing, but normally I have a show on Tuesdays uh, starting at um, 6 Mountain Central, or sorry, Mountain Standard Time. It's Kent with Bent, me and my uh, co-host Benthoven, no relation, basically just laugh at some stupid Kenthoven stuff. And also, I believe next week we actually have an Eric with Erica planned. That is the normal schedule, so That's Erica cool. will actually be on my channel next week. Uh, I do not have a, a terribly impressive list of academic credentials. I have a, a history degree, and um, yeah, there you go. However, I am uh, a pretty... Uh, passionate about this these subjects, and I spend a lot of my time reading about them, um, going into uh, the primary literature, seeing what secondary <clears throat> sorry secondary literature is saying about it, and stuff like that. So I feel like while this is a little bit outside my normal wheelhouse, um, it's a conversation I I want to have, and um, I'm I think that both Sal and I will come away with uh, some new stuff to think about, perhaps, or at least different ways to think about the same stuff we've been thinking about, and uh, yeah. I want to encourage you guys to go subscribe to both me and Sal. Sal is just starting his channel, so he needs all the subscribers he can get. He's simulcasting this. Um, so, yeah, go over there and help him out. He's got only a, a few videos, but he seems to be uploading pretty regularly. So if you want more Sal Cordova, he's he is producing more Sal Cordova for you. Absolutely, man. I subscribe to both of these guys. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about science and about scientific discourse is that it truly is for everyone. You know, this is this is something that anyone can get interested in. And thanks to the age of information, uh, one of the few positives of the Internet, I might posit, um, we, we can all get to know these topics decently well. Uh, I am super psyched for this discussion, though, so I'm going to toss it over to Sal and just let him get at it, because, you know, I can yammer on for, for hours, as those of you who know me in the audience may know. So, <laughs> Sal, take it's, it away. Thank you. Uh, praise, uh, I have a uh, my slideshow up. And Dapper, thanks for plugging my channel, and I will do the same. I, you know, it, we're nothing if we can't plug one another's channels. This is, uh, as you can see, www.evidenceandreasons.org is my website. And you can actually get to my website by clicking the YouTube channel there link. So that's just, I'm trying to make it as easy as possible to find my YouTube channel since the search engines don't quite uh, hit it right now. The way I kind of frame tonight's discussion is, should biology be seen through the lens of evolutionary fitness? And I will argue for the negative. And it's a very simple reason. When we look at a bird or an airplane, we say that uh, these machines, and I'll call a bird a machine, 
are uh, machines that are fit to fly. And they're fit to fly for a um, variety of reasons uh, th that don't have to be tied to anything to do with reproductive success. Now, we could say an airplane is fit to fly because it flies. That's a true statement, but it's a mostly useless statement. I think a lot of assertions in evolutionary theory are regarding fitness are unfortunately uh, of that variety. Um, it may not be as blatant as that. And I'm hoping to try to represent the other side as well as accurately as I can. And so to the extent that I, I don't uh, express or articulate their views, uh, I want to be corrected on that. So that's why I'm very grateful to have Dapper here tonight. I'll say an airplane is fit to fly because it has wings that provide adequate lift and propulsion that sustains adequate speed to create lift. The real problem that needs to be solved uh, is not uh, the reproductive success of existing traits. The problem is the origin and evolution of reproductively successful traits. Uh, and these are traits that selection, in my opinion, would often prevent from evolving. Now, going back to the bird example, uh, a flying bird, uh, there are birds that don't fly like penguins. A flying bird flies because it has wings and its lift to weight ratio is above 1.0. And, I meant, uh, and the same is true for a, um, an airplane. And George Jackson Mivart said, uh, what use is half a wing? And that may play later on into some of the discussions if we have time. That theme was echoed by Gould and also Behe. Now I'll point out here a submarine, man-made submarine, and then what I would call a God-made submarine, the, the whale. They're able to operate undersea because of their characteristics. And, uh, uh, you know, they are, not, they are not machines that can operate, like, say, in a desert. So I prefer to define, like, kind of the operational fitness in terms of kind of engineering principles instead of reproductive success. So that's just basically where I'm headed tonight. I'll point out some other things. Sharks are uh, able to sense electric fields. So uh, they, they're able to sense electric fields. Uh, they have such sensitivity that it exceeds anything we can make. We have machines that can sense electric fields, but uh, sharks can sense them at nanovolts per meter. And I talked to radar engineers. They said, yep, that's right about the limit of physics. So we could say a shark is fit to sense electric fields. It's also able, it has a suite of sensory organs that are able to sense all sorts of things and we can define fitness in that way. Eyes are also fit to see uh, based on architecture and geometric optics. Now I'm gonna introduce a little levity here. We can say individuals are fit. Uh, these two young ladies in this picture are um, young and healthy and we would consider them fit. I'm not gonna endorse the following as an actual case study, but I found this on the internet. Uh, the website claims that these two fit young ladies looked like that before their weight loss program. So the sense of fit, physically fit, uh, has nothing to do with uh, reproductive uh, success. We can determine it in terms of optimality of physical characteristics like weight or uh, heart function, et cetera. Total aside, just as a moment of levity, uh, the girl here is quoted as saying, he treated me the same way at 485 pounds. 
that he does at 182 pounds. Love doesn't have a size or weight limit. That, uh, sorry, that was neither here nor there. I uh, just pointing out the, the idea of fitness doesn't have to be uh, tied to any sort of evolutionary notions. Now, I did go to the internet and look for dictionary definitions of fitness. There's physical fitness. It is a state of health and well-being, and more specifically, the ability to perform aspects of sports, occupations, and daily activities. Uh, it could also be the quality of being suitable to fulfill a particular role or task, uh, such as uh, in this quote, he had a year in which to establish his fitness for the office. And then a little bit closer to the evolutionary definition of fitness, an organism's ability to survive and reproduce in a particular environment. I think that's a little vague, but um, and perhaps it's not exactly the population genetic definition. This is the population genetic definition, which is from theoretical evolutionary genetics. And you could see it's math heavy. Uh, it's basically the number of offspring a, a, um, an individual has uh, that survived to reproduce. Uh, we don't have to go into the technical terms. There's even more technical. Uh, again, this is far removed from the way we just, I introduced the idea of fitness of birds and airplanes. There are more technical ideas such as relative versus absolute fitness and S coefficients. We won't go there uh, tonight unless you really want to. I, in the pro I had published a paper on Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection. I was critical of it. I did some derivations to demystify it. I, I took some of the notations and try to clarify them. And in the process, I realized it, it's so abstracted away from our basic understanding of why an airplane would be fit. I said, it's just totally decoupled. So if you think I'm overstating the case where I made this up, uh, I'm not alone in this. And I discovered uh, literature to this effect. Uh, I mean, to me, the, the, what evolutionary fitness basically says is something is fit because it reproduces and it reproduces because it's fit. And uh, let me just read some well-renowned authors and evolutionary biologists. Alan Orr said, biologists have offered a staggering number of definitions of fitness. Richard Lewontin said, it is not entirely clear what fitness is. And Andreas Wagner said, fitness is hard to define rigorously and more difficult to measure. Andreas Wagner said, an examination of fitness and its robustness alone would thus not yield much insight into the opening questions. Instead, it is necessary to analyze on all levels of organization the systems that constitute an organism and thus and that sustain its life. I define such systems loosely as assemblies of parts that carry out well-defined biological functions. This ironically sounds hauntingly familiar to something Michael Behe said he said, a system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function of the system. And that is basically how I, I'm trying to describe the functioning of an airplane. And so I'm just going to skip some of the redundancy here. Uh, finally, Richard Lewontin said uh, from the Santa Fe Bulletin, and I'll read just three paragraphs uh, to close this opening segment. The problem is that it is not entirely clear what fitness is. Darwin took the metaphorical sense of fitness literally. The natural properties of different types resulted in their differential fit into the environment in which they lived. The better the fit to the environment, the more likely they were to survive and the greater their rate of reproduction. 
This dif differential rate of reproduction would then result in a change of abundance in of the different types. This is a little bit closer to my definition, but not quite. In modern evolutionary theory, however, fitness is no longer a characterization of the relation of the organism to the environment that leads to reproductive consequences, but is meant to be a quantitative expression of the dif differential reproductive schedules themselves. Darwin's sense of fit has been completely bypassed. And finally, if a type increases in a population, then it is, by definition, more fit. But this suffers from two difficulties. First, it does not distinguish random changes in frequencies in finite populations from changes that are a consequence of different biological properties. Finally, it destroys any use of differential fitness as an explanation of change. It simply affirms that types change in frequency, but we already knew that. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Sal. That was that, you know, I don't even have to time you guys either. My job is so easy when I get uh, two, two civil and intelligent debaters. So we're going to hit on over to Dapper and uh, let, let him get his opener in. Dapper, do you, do you have a slideshow or are you just doing a, a spoken deal? Dapper, we can't hear you. I was muted. Oh, I do not have a, I do not have a presentation. Sorry, I apparently also am inept at computers. Listen, I just thought you were taking a minute to to really ponder it, to really think. I had to it. I had to center myself. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. All right. All right. So, well, what, I'll just start on your first word then, and I'll let you know when you're in at nine minutes. All right. Well, so the reason that we're really here ultimately comes down to uh, evolutionary biologists tend to define fitness in a way that is inconvenient for some of my. Uh, I guess opponents, although we're friendly opponents, uh, positions, especially about genetic entropy. And the problem with genetic entropy is that unless you can redefine fitness, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, and one of the problems here is that we're running into a similar situation, and forgive the comparison, it's not meant uh, as to be insulting, but um, where you might point out to one of the um, somewhat more intelligent flat earthers that, hey, density doesn't have a vector, so you can't use it to explain downward acceleration. And they say, well, what if we just redefine density to have a vector? It's like, well, I guess that might kind of help, but it circles back around to needing gravity. And now you just have a more complicated definition for density than you need. And we're in a similar situation here where fitness in evolutionary biology is defined in terms of reproductive success, because in the long run, what's going to stick around is what has been reproductive, reproductively successful. Um, and one of the reasons that we measure it that way is because it's possible. Now, it is tricky in many cases. For instance, let's say you have an overnight experiment with um, bacteria. How many generations have gone by? How can you track individual inheritance from one bacterium to the other? It's pretty tough. You basically can't, which means you need some proxies, but the proxies always have to come back to uh, reproductive fitness. So, for instance, in the long-term Lenski experiment, they compare um, the number of uh, wild strain E. coli to experimental strain of E. coli that are that end up being produced in test samples after whatever period, I don't remember. And then they use those proportions to help determine fitness in the particular experimental environment. Um, but in other places, you might have to just go with count offspring. So for instance, elephants, it's hard to get to you know more than one generation of elephants because they just take so darn long to breed. Um, but the general hopeful, what we can generally get to is number of grandchildren that survive to reproduce 
if you or your population are at eight or over, you're gonna probably maintain. If you go over, you're gonna take over the population. If you go under, your lineage is tending towards extinction. Um, that's just a result of math, and that's for you know organisms that are sexually reproducing with two sexes. So other organisms that can change there. So, but what my uh, interlocutor here is suggesting is essentially sort of we should talk about fitness in terms of the kind of thing you might go to the gym for. You know, I wanna pump some iron, but the problem is that Nature doesn't really care how strong or fast or agile you are or how well you can fly, except in that those things directly relate to your reproductive success. And I know there was the claim that some of these things don't, but in fact they do. Uh, if you were to take essentially any flighted bird right now, and except in situations where they've just newly colonized a new island or something, the kind of situation where we lose flightlessness, and then you were to say clip their wings so that they can't control their flight effectively, that's gonna to lead to a significant decrease in reproductive success. Uh, you can also see similar things with you know, various breeds of domesticated dogs. So a beagle is not something that's gonna survive outside of an environment where humans are purposefully getting them to make more of themselves. But in that environment, being an adorable little beagle is a huge reproductive advantage. And um, now this does make a complication. We could have something that in this uh, gym membership kind of definition for fitness, we can say, oh, this is definitely fit, more fit. You know, it's stronger or faster or it conducts this, you know, biochemical reaction faster or more efficiently. But the thing is that in every single one of those cases, there is at least a conceivable environment where being able to be better at that thing is actually costly to reproductive success. So it might be that the energy that it takes to maintain really big muscles isn't worth it compared to just letting you have, you know, a mutation that just reduces your overall muscle mass. And that might be a case in say human evolution where humans are much less muscular than other apes. Well, they don't really need to be that muscular. They're not uprooting trees or trying to fight lions with their bare hands, they're using tools. Tools multiply your force so you can reduce the caloric burden on muscles. Uh, we get similar things with um, uh, vaccine, or not vaccine, sorry, uh, antibiotic resistance in bacteria. Usually the adaptations to avoid the, the antibiotic would result in a less successful uh, geno or phenotype outside of a heavily antibiotic you know, present environment. But so what? All that evolution cares about is what is going to get you to survive. And evolution doesn't care about sort of your personal assessment because one of the problems with this gym type membership, or sorry, um, definition, is it's very heavily focused on what humans emotionally feel like is good. Humans like things to be big and strong and smart and fast, but nature doesn't care except where it helps. Uh, another big problem with it is that you, I have yet to find even a hypothetical way to standardize this definition of fitness that is engineering or the gym type fitness. How do you measure it? Do you measure it in terms of like for strength, just how many you know kilograms the animal can lift per kilogram of its own body weight? Well, then I would say, well, that makes most insects vastly more fit than humans, but is that actually true? Are humans really more fit than say ladybugs? I don't know. On the basis of that, I guess they would have to be. But uh, then you have to compare other things. Like what about speed? Are humans more fit than chipmunks because their overland long distance speed is higher? I don't know why, why would we, why would we say that? Um, and so you get to this problem where you just can't define it if we're gonna go into um, this gym version of fitness. You can't measure it the same way that you can with reproductive success. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things. The, the three main problems I see with it is uh, one, it's arbitrary based on human preferences that nature doesn't care about. 
Uh, two, it actually doesn't affect the long term of biology because biology only actually cares about reproductive success. And three, it becomes impossible to actually quantify, which means it's useless for further study in science because you can't actually do any analysis on it, uh, except in very specific individual traits. But again, since that doesn't tie back necessarily to reproduction, it doesn't really help in terms of evolutionary biology. Um, I think that's basically my main points. Um, I will say that I, I did enjoy Sal's uh, opening and uh, thank you very much, Sal, that was great. But um, I think that's really all I have is that, yeah, those three main points. Um, so if we wanna just toss it over to an open discussion, that's fine by me. Absolutely, we can 100% do that. Look, yeah, both of you guys are yes. under time. I don't have to do a thing. Um, I know. Before We're we good. go into this open discussion, uh, give me a moment to shame the chat because we've got 238 folks watching and we only have 62 likes and three dislikes. I'm coming for you oh. guys. Um, I'm, a, I'm one of those like blackers there. Yeah, I smash the like button, do the thing where you subscribe, hit the bell, that's the other one, hit that bell. Uh, if you want to get more, you know, James moderation and guest moderation for, you know, epic debates, as as the youngsters would say. What so, Erica's trying to avoid saying is you guys want more Erica. So hit like whenever Erica's here. Yeah, that's that's the truth. I, yeah. I, I, I'm i not getting enough affirmation from the chat. And you guys know I, I subsist almost entirely on positive attention. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> please, everyone in the chat, please tell Erica what a great moderator she is. <laughs> Uh, you know, she she's the star of the show. Uh, people were uh, just uh, it, this has nothing to do with anything. If you, uh, I'm no. just going to plug you here, Erica. The, the the last we I had two debates with Dr. Dan, and the first debate everyone was coming because of you, and then when you didn't show up because you were hanging out with your fiance, I all these know. all these guys on Twitter were just like, "Oh, Erica, that's what I came for." And then oh. the next debate, you announced that you were engaged, and all these guys were just like, oh, oh, heart oh, the, the whole internet was heartbroken. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the, you, know, are, you guys are lucky that I use, like, blinding, you know, lighting in here, so you can't see how badly I'm blushing. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm changing the subject abruptly before you guys make me more <laughs> embarrassed than I already am. So hop into the open discussion. I will let okay. you guys know when we're at, like, um, 40 minutes. Right. All right, so I'd like to hear Sal start that, because I, I think... Yeah, back and forth. Uh, I think you had so, so many excellent points. I don't think I'll be able to address them all, um, all at once. And uh, so it doesn't mean I'm trying to dodge them because I, I think every my students deserve a response to everything you said. So I will try to address it. If I miss it, uh, please feel free to remind me. And, and, and you know me, if I say I don't have a good response, I'll just say that. Yeah. So I'd like to point this out. And uh, I'm just, just going to solicit your opinion on it. And um, I'm sorry to put you a little bit on the spot, but this is what I'd raise to my students. Uh, praise if you could help me. I have an abstract here on intelligence and childlessness. OK. Is it coming up? Oh, thank you. Oh, here we go. So this is from. Oh, social science research. Yes, demographers, I, I, de demographers debate why people have children in advanced industrial societies where children are not are net economic costs. From an evolutionary perspective, however, the important question is why some individuals choose not to have children. 
Recent theoretical developments in evolutionary psychology suggest that more intelligent individuals may be more likely to prefer to remain childless than less intelligent individuals. Analyses of the National Child Development Study shows that more intelligent men and women express preference to remain childless early in their reproductive careers. But only more intelligent women, not more intelligent men, are more likely to remain childless by the end of their reproductive careers. Controlling for education and earnings does not at all attenuate the association between childhood general intelligence and lifetime childlessness among women. One standard deviation uh, uh, increase in childhood general intelligence, that's 15 IQ points, decreases women's odds of parenthood by 21 to 25%. Because women have a greater impact on the average intelligence of future generations, the, degen the, the dysgenic fertility among women is predicated, is predicted, I'm sorry, predicted to lead to a decline in the average intelligence of the population in advanced industrial nations. So my question is, is that um, assuming hypothetically that this is an accurate portrayal right. of the environment, does that mean, would we say evolutionary fitness in this case uh, favors traits that decrease intelligence? In other words, kind of to, to put it more in more vulgar terms, that, does it like stupidity? Well, it certainly is the case that there would be a, so essentially what we're seeing here is a, a circumstance where the fitness peak has shifted, which is one of the things that I find um, anti-evolution literature rarely tackles uh, is the shifting of the fitness landscape. So the fitness landscape is this idea where we have peaks of high fitness around a um, morphological landscape that's sort of, it's this 3D curve of hills and valleys, right? Up at the peaks, you're good at reproducing. Down in the troughs, you're bad at it. But because the environment can change, where those peaks are can change. Now, I would not say that this means that being dumb, as in the lowest IQ possible, is what's going to be at the fitness peak. But what it does mean is that the fitness peak in some places has gone to a somewhat lower level of intelligence and that getting to that fitness peak will be advantageous, but going beyond it won't. So for instance, this is unlikely to lead to say humans who can no longer use tools or language because that would be such a big disadvantage in industrial society that it would be hard to see why that would be something that would be favored. I don't think most people want to have their uh, life partner be, uh, you know, unintelligible and illiterate. Most people don't want that. So there is a new fitness peak. So it's not that we're selecting for being dumb or that being dumb is evolutionarily advantageous. It's just that a new lower intelligence is the new peak in some places. And yeah, I don't see why that is a, a problem. Plus it also means that based on this definition of evolutionary fitness, which is just reprodu differential reproductive success, we can make a prediction like, you know, a roughly 15 uh, IQ point decrease over the course of some period of time, because we've used the actual standard evolutionary definition in something that's measurable. So now we can make a prediction. It would be hard to make a prediction on the basis of sort of this gym version of fitness where we just say, well, I feel like smarter is better. Therefore this is bad. Okay, well, that's great. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree. I would prefer people to be smarter, but I don't get to make that decision. What do we do with it now? And I, I don't know what answer there is for sort of uh, your position, Sal, in terms of what do we do with this this definition? Like, can you measure it? Is, are you just measuring IQ points for fitness? Why do you think that's a, a valid way to measure fitness uh, for any animal is to just measure IQ points? I, I was I was 
Oh, th thank you. That was an excellent response. I was just, just pointing out that um, selection can select for decreasing capabilities. I Absolutely. Mean, once, once those brain cells are lost, it may not be recoverable. I mean, we don't know that yet, but there is concern. And there are other peer-reviewed papers to that, that effect. I just wanted to point out for the sake of the audience that one of the top evolutionary biologists, Michael Lynch, he says, um, without any compelling arguments, and I'm right here. I don't know if you could see my cursor. I'll try to move it up a little bit. At this time, it remains difficult to escape the conclusion that numerous physical and psychological attributes are likely to slowly deteriorate in technologically advanced societies. The incidences of a variety of afflictions, including autism, male infertility, asthma, immune system disorders, diabetes, already exhibit increases exceeding the expected rate. This observational work may substantially underestimate the mutational vulnerability of the world's most complex organ, the human brain, because, the, because human brain function is governed by the expression of thousands of genes, the germline mutation rate to psychological disorders, disorders may be unusually high. At least 30% of individuals with autism spectrum disorders appear to acquire such behaviors by de novo mutation. It has been suggested that there has been a slow decline in intelligence in the United States and the United Kingdom over the past century. Uh, just some things have shown that uh, there's a decline. And the way I attribute it is that sometimes selection selects for uh, less intelligence, and then also sometimes selection is not able to clean out, um, totally purge out some of the bad in the uh, collective human genome. So uh, I'm just throwing out another data point, and you could see that um, uh, this is where I developed, just for your information, this is where I developed some sympathies for, for genetic entropy, and I, I believe it's the uh, correct characterization of human destiny, unfortunately. Uh, creationists believe that we are intelligently designed, but also cursed. Now, uh, just one last thing on this point, and then um, feel free to ask me questions. Uh, you've been so kind to answer mine and respond. Uh, this is uh, symptoms of premenstrual syndrome. And I just happened to find an interesting article. Maybe I'm, I'm not going to uh, belabor it. Uh, they asked, what's the evolutionary advantage of premenstrual syndrome? And they articulate why it's good to have all of these characteristics. Um, I'm not saying any of you should buy it, but this is the sort of thing that kind of bothers me a little bit when I study evolutionary literature, uh, so many of the examples of beneficial mutations are not increases in complexity, but losses in them. So, uh, I mean, reductive evolution is, in the, at least to my knowledge, is the dominant mode of evolution, both in the laboratory and field observations. The only place that I see that evolutionist, uh, evolutionary biologists claim uh, that uh, um, the dominant mode is not reductive is kind of in their imagination of the distant past. So that's all I had. Uh, thank you very much for responding to my okay. to my questions, Dapper. So uh, there's a, there's a few things. One thing I want to say is that um, this current increase that we're seeing in things that we would generally characterize as uh, pathological genetic conditions in uh, Homo sapiens is not because of some noticeable acceleration in um, our mutation rate or our phylogenetic uh, replacement rate. 
it's again another example of a shift in the fitness landscape for homo sapiens. Homo sapiens are essentially taking outlying parts of the fitness landscape and pulling them up to be peaks or to be part of the larger peak. And that is because of their rather absurdly high capacity to change the environment around them. So humans move into a place where it's far too cold for them. And then they just decide to grab someone else's fur, turn it inside out and wear it as a coat. And then they decide to make houses out of actual snow and somehow that manages to work. And so they take what would otherwise be a deadly hostile environment and change it into something where they can survive. And then as they increase in technology, you get to the point where what otherwise would have been death sentences is now a controllable and while unfortunate, certainly not you know life ending or reproducing reproduction ending uh, disease. And so that is humans changing the fitness landscape. If they weren't doing that, we wouldn't see this. So rather than an example of some new thing happening in genetics or something that we can generalize to evolution as a whole, we're seeing changes in the fitness landscape. And I feel like, again, this is something that anti-evolutionists really have trouble addressing is when you point to something and you call it reductive or maybe it's losing some specificity, well, the fitness landscape changed. And there are cases where in a new fitness landscape, we can get new things. So for instance, there's the, uh, and I know, I'm pretty sure you've heard about this one, uh, Dr. Dan has mentioned it, but um, in M group HIV virus, there is a protein VPU, which conducts its normal old function that it did as in its, you know, sister populations among the simian immunovirus groups. But it also antagonizes uh, Homo sapiens tetherin, which is, has an unusual structure compared to other primates. Uh, human tetherin is smaller, and so SIV has trouble antagonizing it. But this VPU protein, which doesn't normally do tetherin antagonism at all, maintains its old function, but also latches on to a different functional site on human tetherin than other SIV viruses use when they're using their own proteins for tetherin antagonism, which is what allows HIV to infect humans in the first place. This is a brand new function. Nothing was reduced. Further, we have examples like uh, human lactase persistence is not as a result of any loss of function. It's actually an enhancement to the promotion of the enzyme lactase. So your cell just uh, normally when uh, mammals undergo their weaning period where they lose their lactase production, it's not that there's necessarily an inhibition. It's just that other things are promoted more. And so the actual amount of lactase produced is insufficient to effectively digest lactose. In humans with uh, lactase persistence, that promotion is strengthened. So there's just more of the function that was already there. So while it is easier to point out something that maybe lost some degree of function in one area and that caused a benefit, to a large extent, that's just because of a sampling bias. It's easier to see those things. Uh, they're more obvious. It's not always very obvious when, say, you know, a mammal gains some slightly tweaked and slightly more effective metabolic pathway. Because, I mean, what do you look for? Uh, so part of that is just, you know, it's sort of the, you know, there's the story about a guy who's searching all around for his keys under a lamppost. And someone comes by and says, oh, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my keys. He's like, oh, well, is, did you drop them here? And he says, oh, no, I dropped them over there, but there's no light over there. So I'm looking here. We get that same thing with which mutations we tend to look at. We tend to look at the ones that are obvious to us and are also um, produce dramatic effects. But we have plenty of examples of non-degenerative evolution happening in multiple areas. Uh, you know, we have an example of, um, I believe it was a flounder in Antarctica that had a duplication of one of its um, genes coding for some protein. I don't remember which one, 
I'll, I can look it up later if we need the, to. But the, anti um, the antifreeze protein. Right. Right. So it kept the original protein and then it gained a new antifreeze protein, which allowed it to survive in colder temperatures. So it's not at all the case that everything is reductive. There's a lot of examples of brand new functions that do not reduce any old functioning. However, evolution is sort of a, um, it's, it's sort of a, a slap it together at the last minute sort of a force. So if something is convenient here and it's going to be reductive in the, this gym fitness sense, well, evolution is just going to go for it because all evolution cares about ultimately is reproductive fitness. And that's why, again, it's the important aspect of evolutionary biology is how we make predictions. It's one of the only things we can directly measure and compare across organisms. So for instance, if, um, if it turns out that Sal, you're stronger and smarter than I am, well, that doesn't tell us much about our genetic success in an evolutionary sense. We would have to look at differential reproductive success because if you're stronger and smarter than me, but you don't end up having more descendants. Well, I mean, good for you, but in terms of evolution, that would mean that I would be the winner there. Not that it's you know a game that we have to win. Evolution is just what it is. Um, and also, I think there's one thing that you're, um, a lot of times you said things like, this is fit to fly or something. And I think that implies a sort of extrinsic purpose to uh, biological organisms that they don't actually demonstrably have. Organisms exist because they make more of themselves. Uh, they don't have any particular purpose in a grand scheme, at least in terms of biology. Now, if you want to say that they do in some sort of spiritual sense or something like that, I, I don't really care to argue with that. But I do want to be careful that we don't import, import or sorry, um, impart to creatures some extrinsic purposefulness that they really don't have in the grand scheme of things. Like, what's the grand purpose of bot flies? Is it to make everything miserable for everyone? That's what they do. I would prefer to say that that is not an intended purpose from some great omnipotent creator who created bot flies because he hates everyone. So that's, that's all I got. Um, well, thank you for your response. There are actually quite a thing, number of things I would totally disagree with, but we may not have time. And I wonder if Erica is looking through all the super chats and if there are questions in the queue and they're just dying to ask us, I, I, I do. Uh, there are a couple of things that, um, I didn't respond to Dapper and uh, I apologize in advance and feel free to remind you, you I think one of them was regarding uh, whether there's just kind of an alternative definition in engineering fitness. I would say there's not. Um, we don't have one set of specifications to define fitness for every machine. So uh, I can elaborate on that more. So I actually, I have a very specific question about that because I yes. think this might drive to the heart of it. So let's say we have two members of the same species, and we'll, we'll just pick something that people are familiar with. So we've got two wolves. And to keep things simple, we'll, we'll say that they're, they're the same sex. Using this engineering version of fitness, how do you correlate which one is more fit on this basis and give it a number that we can use to meaningfully make predictions about future data in terms of wolf population genetics? Sometimes the traits may, um, the, the changes may be uh, the effect on the way uh, they're able to compete reproductively might be too weak to detect. And even evolutionary biologists might not be able to de detect that. We know that because based on uh, the population size, a lot of things will, uh, that may even have hypothetically reproductive advantage will be treated almost neutral. So it's not so much 
putting exact numbers on reproduction. It's talking about how successfully they're able to operate in an environment. So let's say one wolf has uh, better optics. Uh, it is, it does, it's not as subject to uh, myopia or um, other, uh, other optical problems than the other wolf. Uh, that's clearly definable in terms of geometric optics and physics and performance. And, and, and so there, there are metrics that to, perhaps the way to do it is not the whole organism, but in terms of the functioning of various parts, because the way we, uh, we score airplanes, uh, so we've had airplanes that are basically the same airplane, but then they've had slight modifications to the preference of the mission. I, cause I follow, uh, war okay. history, particularly aviation. And we'll say you have one set of specifications that describe this airplane is designed to operate at high altitudes, but doesn't have a lot of armament. It's not going to be a, a great well, fighter at low altitudes. And I, that's, I think, that's all it is. And I think and I understand what you're yeah, saying, but I, yeah. I, I want to, there's a couple important things. One is, the reason we can do this for say different aircraft designs that we want to say which one we want to use for the same purpose is because humans are giving an extrinsic purpose to an aircraft. Humans, which are not aircrafts, but who build aircrafts have decided, I want an aircraft for this purpose. Maybe it's cargo hauling between, I don't know, Singapore and Kuala Lumpur, doesn't matter. So we have specific engineering requirements, but unless we can find who is telling a wolf what its purpose is, and what they would like to see it do, regardless of reproduction, we cannot come up with a similar objective criterion for wolves in how they interact in their environment, because frankly, the wolves don't care that much and neither does evolution. All that biology cares about is, or at least evolutionary biology, is all that that cares about is what's going to happen in population genetics of these wolves. And so I, I have to repeat the question, how do we measure the fitness between these two wolves and then use that measurement to make quantitative predictions about the future of wolf genetics based on that assessment. I don't think we make quantitative for reproduction and genetics. I don't think that's the purpose. See, see the purpose, uh, we can also define the operating parameters of, of a machine without but they don't have saying, population genetics. No, no, without without having to see that's the thing, is that's one of the problems is we're conceiving biology in ter terms of reproductive success. We need to look at biology in terms of engineering machines. And one thing I um wanted to point out tonight, and thank you for reminding me, is there's a developing field of both biophysics and systems biology. Mm -hmm. Systems biology looks at at biological systems, as, bio, as at biological organisms, as collections of systems. And so right. even if we don't have, <clears throat> even if we don't say metaphysically established purpose, we can still affix parameters like a, um, like an engineer would and say, okay, I don't know what the purpose of this vehicle is. I don't know what it was meant to fight or what it was, maybe it was a bad design, but we can establish that it's operating performance characteristics in terms of climb rates and, um, and speed and all these other factors. And that's exactly what a lot of systems biology does. We can also do comparative anatomy. We can compare the, um, the optical function of a human eye versus that of an insect. And we, we could say, okay, this is optimized to do tasks. It can do sensory operations. 
and it can see these sort of things at these wavelengths. These are just all engineering specifications. And I find that a more, just because I'm an engineer maybe, I find that more satisfying way to describe biology in terms of systems and machines. And the reason about one third of MIT engineers in one study, one third of MIT engineers are studying biological systems. That's because they have the proper skill set to understand um, how biology works. And I'm really, you know, I feel I have a lot of friends in evolutionary biology, and I have a picture of one of my professors. I studied evolutionary biology, and I feel kind of bad that I have to rag on their field. But modern research into biology, like at the NIH, they have a staff of 30,000 people there. Only about 30 people are dedicated evolutionary biologists. It's just not a skill set that is needed for modern research into biology. That's because um, um, it, a lot of biological systems, they look designed, they parallel, and in fact, many cases exceed the engineering specifications of anything we can build. Uh, okay. And I, but I, could, I, could, I could enumerate so many examples. And the thing is, is even if we don't metaphysically assume that there is some purpose, it's hard to run away from the fact that these machines can operate and perform like the bird's magnetic compass. It enables birds like the Arctic Tern to fly from the North Pole to the South Pole. It took thousands of years for humans to be able to build intercontinental navigation systems. And, and we still don't know how the, the bird does it. We do know it has a magnetic compass that uses um, quantum spin chemistry and entanglement. And I have a, yeah. a citation that it exceeds anything we can build. And so okay. I don't but have to now, assume purpose, but we know that this machine does does it better than anything we can do. So and Sal, I can say that at every level of biology. So thank, gonna, you, for, thank gonna, you for entertaining me. I'm going I'm to agree that yes, there are many organisms that can do things in terms of uh, feats of engineering, say that humans struggle or cannot, at least currently uh, accomplish. But, and I'm not denying that measuring how these things work and determining you know, the exact optical resolution of an eagle eye or just how fast a, uh, a pronghorn can run or something like that. That none of, I'm not saying that these things aren't important things to learn and that they are not aspects of study that are proper to biology. But when we're talking about fitness as a technical term, it really only has use in terms of evolutionary biology as it relates to the outcomes in population genetics that fitness causes. So if you want to have a discussion about you know, how fast a cheetah is or how strong a grizzly bear is. That's great. And it's a great conversation to have. But this conversation has to relate to the technical term of fitness, because I recognize that, you know, you brought some dictionary definitions for fitness, but just like in any other scientific area, the scientific jargon term, the technical term for something does not have to correlate very strongly to what is in the dictionary for lay people. Uh, for instance, um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in quantum physics, quarks are said to have color, and the the um, interaction of quarks based on their color is called electro electro quanto. What was it? Now I can't even remember it. Um, it has chromodynamics, is electrochromodynamics, something like that, right? Quantum, the thing quantum is, chromodynamics. There you go. Yeah, quantum chromodynamics. Uh, actually, the, I'm not familiar with that field. I my physics program didn't go into nuclear oh, stuff, which you, I regret. You do, but the thing is that. When we say that quarks have color, that's not what that literally means. It doesn't mean that if you get a whole bunch of them together, they'll look red. 
for one thing, you can't get a bunch of them together and they don't reflect way, uh, light the same way that you know objects do. So this isn't one of those cases where it doesn't matter what the dictionary says about fitness. What matters is how it's used in the area of science where it's used as a technical term, which is evolutionary biology and population genetics. And no amount of saying we, need, we can measure these things and we can see how wonderful life is changes the fact that when it comes to making predictions about population genetics, all that matters is reproductive fitness. That's it. All the other things only matter in as much as they affect that. And I don't see why we need to change that in this one technical field, because we're already talking about all these things in the standard secular mainstream science. Everyone's talking about how great sharks are at electrosensory perception. Everyone's already talking about how strong ants are or all these things. But when it comes to population genetics, it doesn't matter how strong they are, it matters how well they reproduce and how strong they are only matters to that in so much as it helps them reproduce. And so that's my problem with this line of argumentation where yes, it is important, but it's not on the topic in my opinion. No, I think that's a fair point. There is one thing I want to, if uh, you'll indulge me. Uh, of course. This is one time I hope you'll be actually a little bit more verbose so I can get something Ooh. on Google. So, oh, you if, you so if you have another go, minute go or so, okay. I'd appreciate it. So thanks. Um, so, and that that is one of the things that concerns me about uh, a lot of debates about very technical scientific terms is that a lot of times um, the person who's proposing some change is making a good point in that the thing that they would like to capture with their measurement is a great thing to capture in a measurement. It's just not this measurement. So I don't think anyone is going to say we should stop paying attention to, you know, the actual uh, abilities of individual organisms or species. It's just that those answer different questions. So if you want to say, how does a cheetah get that fast? That's a great question to look into things like spine flexibility, springiness of the ligaments, things like that, leg length. But if you want to say, how is it cheetahs keep reproducing? That's a different question and it needs a different measurement. And I think I have filled in the what otherwise would have been dead air sufficiently for Sal, maybe, I'm hoping, because I'm running out of things to say, Sal, you got to save me. All righty, thank you. Uh, now, I, th I think you made very valid points and I would want my students to hear what you characterize, because I, I think you're more straight up than most people I've dealt with. And uh, I just wanted to point out something. When I studied, what, what disillusioned me about population genetics, and you know, I, there's some really great guys in the field, like Joe Felsenstein. He's always been generous and kind to me, and it just hurts me to death that I just have to trash his life work. I mean, it's not- Hey, it's not my life work, so trash it away. So the- uh, uh, this came up because in my research in a peer-reviewed uh, um, paper that I've, uh, several of them that I've actually been working in population genetics. And for what it's worth, this is not my field because I really don't like it. The, the, the problem is that even within the field of population genetics, they're finally admitting they're not able to come up with very stable predictions. Uh, yet, yes, we can track a trait. I mean, if it has a really strong selection coefficient, as in like, bacterial resistance, you can really say, okay, this is going to, right? But you know, this one's, uh, yeah. The problem comes when we have more complex organisms and the interactions between, their interactions between the genes, such as uh, linkage and epistasis, and that there are many of these genes. Uh, th this was actually kind of a crisis. And this, I I'm just showing a paper that said, um, 
The theory was beautiful indeed, rise and fall and circulation of maximizing methods in population genetics. And it was talking about, um, uh, the whole paper is actually kind of a painful mathematical read, but it talked about how the idea of uh, fitness even being maximized fell apart. And in, I, I showed a little bit of a clip of Joe Felsenstein's book, Theoretical Evolutionary Genetics. In that book, in the later chapters, it shows Patrick Moran uh, dissected this and it, it was actually, it caused a crisis. He showed that fitness may not ever maximize, may not, they're, they're, they're pathological situations. If there's linkage and epistasis, that uh, all these genes may not fix and it may never maximize. And then, as I pointed out, Lewinton was saying it's very hard to measure it. What he was specifically studied was density dependent selection. So you could take the same organisms. So like say fruit fly has uh, allele A and another fruit fly has allele B. Depending on how you change the density of the initial population, say in a fruit fly farm, uh, it, it'll affect who ends up being the most fit. And it really bothered Lewinton. He said, well, then how's this any different than just um, looking at the reproductive schedules after the fact? He, he didn't use the words after the fact, but that's essentially what was happening. He said he could not predict because the, the equations were not tractable. They're called coupled differential equations. Oh, so okay. I'm saying uh, even on the terms that of their right. own ideas, it falls apart. And then they also use a lot of, um, they use a lot of approximations that don't work. They assume, and in the case of Lewinton, that example with the fruit flies, the, the, it works better if the models assume kind of a stable fitness coefficient and stable reproduction rates, which is not true. And it just blows everything there. away. And it, you know, it, it's very hard to say that it, it, it may not make, not only does it not make very good predictions, even in the present day, if it's having problems in the present day making predictions, uh, how's it going to be able to say anything about what happened in the past with any degree of reliability? Well, there, and, there's, uh, so, I'd like to address some of that. Please, please, you, please. So there's a few things. Uh, one is, and I, I think this is a, a really quick one. You said that um, there may not, you may not be able to get to the hypothetical peak um, uh, fitness in an environment, which I would just say, okay, that's, that's fine. As long as the gene, as, the, as long as the lineage persists, it doesn't need to get to a particular peak. In fact, most uh, fitness landscape modeling does not involve organisms generally making it all the way to the peak before a peak shifts. Uh, you might get some exceptions. Uh, but another thing is most of what you've just given over are reasons why it's difficult to actually assess fitness short of just literally counting offspring, which in most model organisms isn't feasible. But that's a problem with measurement, not a problem with the idea, because in cases where we can carefully measure it, we can make predictions. And basically what you're saying is the instrument error is too high, so let's throw out the whole idea. But that's essentially the same thing as saying, well, you know, these first few telescopes don't really tell us much about the solar system. So let's just abandon astronomy and we'll stick with, you know, Aristotelian cosmology. Well, as time goes and new, new uh, parts of science develop better techniques, better instruments and things like that, their predictions become better and their measurements become more precise. So I, that, that whole thing about the trouble in finding out what 
how things are going to affect fitness, how, and the trouble in measuring fitness isn't a problem for the definition of fitness. It's a technical problem and one that I don't see any reason why it won't improve as the ability of, say, humans to do things like sequence genomes, track uh, reproduction in various organisms, use perhaps more um, appropriate model organisms as we discover what those might be. There's no reason any of those things can't happen. So this is essentially just someone saying to someone in like 1820, oh, you're never going to get a fixed wing aircraft to work. Look at all the failures. Okay, that doesn't mean anything. And I think that's the situation where we're in now. Yeah, I don't deny that assessing fitness and making predictions can be difficult and that the predictions often have a high, a high margin of error, but they exist and they can be verified. But this, this version of fitness where it's basically the kind of thing you go to the gym to get, as far as I can tell, can't even in principle make those types of predictions, never mind make fuzzy ones that are hard to, that you know have a wide margin of error. As far as I can tell, it's just not making predictions in population genetics at all. And so right now I'm faced with, we've got one thing that's hard to do, but it does give results. And we've got another thing that I don't have any methodology for. I don't have any standard units for. I don't even have a really clear definition of. And it's also, as I've said, um, very tied in with human emotionalism. And it has yet to produce results. And I know which of those two I would go with. It's the one that's producing fuzzy results. I have one more slide to, to go with. I, I don't want to belabor the topic. I do agree with you that they're not units specifically for engineering fitness. Uh, if this is a shameless plug for a paper, this was peer reviewed for a ID friendly institution called the Blythe Institute. We're not, you know, we're not, they don't push biblical creationism, even though everyone, even though a lot of the people there are young earth creationists, they try to um, highlight things that are, we try to argue in terms of mainstream science as much as possible. So even though you'll see me cite scripture in one venue, I don't cite it in this one. For the Blythe Institute, this is a free online open access. It was kind of scraps from the cutting room floor of an actual secular peer-reviewed thing that I submitted. I've received word that it might be accepted. We'll see. Um, and I'm just going to share a quote, just take it for what it is. And I, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's fair game to say if I'm representing this accurately. Uh, but uh, in my paper, at least I give the full citations. And so I, I invite people that are really interested in this stuff to, to look it up. So I, I'm going to read the quote and kind of give my take on it. This is by Joe Felsenstein, 2017. He was the author of the Population Evolutionary theoretical genetics. And this is from his essay, Mathematics versus Evolution. And he writes, Fisher and Wright's one locus equations turn out to be approximations, sometimes bad ones. The mathematical tools at hand have not revolutionized our understanding of the evolutionary process. Many evolutionists and I love, and I love that Joe Felsenstein calls them evolutionists. <laughs> Many evolutionists will fail to find the clear and simple messages that population genetics theory once seemed to promise. And uh, this actually began all the way back in 1989, uh, and it was repeated. So I'm just pointing out that 
what we may hear in the popular press as far as the success of population genetics helping us to understand evolution, I don't, I think it's overstated, it's overhyped. And an example of that is actually Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection, because for a while it was said Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection was called biology's central theorem. And it might've been accorded that status because Fisher himself said it's the fundamental theorem. Uh, but uh, the idea that Fisher's theorem is biology's central theorem is by and large a myth and promoted by people like Richard Dawkins and people like Joe Felsenstein have basically said it's was never really that fundamental after all. So there are a lot of myths floating around. My role in this is to try to educate the public on the status of it. And I, I know you're very optimistic and it's a commendable thing to be optimistic, but I, I'm rather negative on where the field's gonna go. And um, that's all I have to say. Thank you for engaging my thoughts. I think you, you've given me some valuable criticisms to think on. And um, uh, I really wanna thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. I mean, I think that's a, a big goal of this is to, to you know, give each other something to think about. I, I don't come into this expecting that you're going to suddenly adopt my position on most of this stuff. So like, I, I get that. Uh, but one thing that um, it still concerns me is here where, now correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't read your paper and I haven't read the, uh, the one that you're critiquing either. So I'm kind of getting this third hand but it still seems yes, that's quite all right, quite all right. It still Understand. seems that most of your criticism here is that this particular theorem requires overly idealized circumstances to produce good results. Yes, and I I can't dispute that. I I don't know, um, but I'll just accept it for the sake of of this argument and say, well, okay. But that just means that we need better techniques and we already have techniques that are better than they were before. I don't think anyone would say that in 2020, we're not better at measuring actual fitness in uh, laboratory model organisms than we were say in 1970. I mean, we just obviously are. For one thing, we can just actually sequence the genomes of, of uh, model organisms that we're using in uh, evolution experiments. And so I don't see why this trend is going to reverse. And again, no matter how difficult it is to measure fitness and no matter how fuzzy the predictions from it are, we actually have a measurement technique in evolutionary biology or several, depending on exactly which organism you're trying to get to, but it centers around the idea of reproductive success. And it does make predictions, even if sometimes they're inexact. And sometimes we've overlooked some things that should have factored into the calculation, but that we didn't. So again, we're still stuck in a situation where for the type of science where evolutionary fitness is important, it still comes down to reproductive success. And it still doesn't really matter how much uh, iron you can pump at the gym if it doesn't result in more reproduction relative to your peers. So I, I don't know why, what the point is in bringing up uh, difficulties in measuring uh, fitness or making or the difficulties involved in making predictions based on somewhat fuzzy measurements because I accept all of those. It doesn't really change the fact that going to a new definition of fitness will be yet less useful in science than it is now in evolutionary biology and population genetics, which is the only area where it really matters in terms of this definition for fitness. Well, I think you have modified. You've given me valuable feedback. Perhaps what I will say is that uh, and, and we can 
we can think about this collectively because I, I haven't committed this to textbooks yet. And this is why I value your, your input. I think the more, the main thing that I wanted to say is the whole, the, the whole discipline is, is not delivered on what they wanted to. I mean, I think they're very sincere guys and they spent their lifetime, but I, I think the enterprise has failed. One of the reasons is actually one that was pointed out by Kimura himself. There is a problem measuring fitness uh, because it depends, our, our resolution, you know, the accuracy of our measurement depends on population size. If we have small population sizes, we, a, a lot of traits that otherwise would be um, considered fit, they can't be measured to be as such. And that's the theory of near neutral mutations by Ata. And so just, you know, I think what has happened is kind of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. As a matter of principle, we're not, you know, there are limits to how accurately we, we can, you know, how much precision we can get right. and I don't in, in our measurement. I think we have the equivalent right now in population genetics because of near neutral theory. And so, um, so perhaps not, you know, even granting that uh, we'll accept that definition, it, um, I think the the field is in major trouble as far as the promise it had hoped to deliver on. And there's a lot of sincere guys and I commend them for trying to figure this out. But I don't think, I mean, this is again, a personal, I'm going to add now a personal thing. I think God ordained that organisms would not be able to uh, be explained in terms of evolution. And this is one example. So I'm seeing some stuff coming through the chat now. Um, and, <laughs> And, well, and, I, and, you know, uh, by the way, if there are things you feel that I've not addressed, I think um, we can con all, I'm, I very much welcome continuing the discussion. Uh, you know, I would, I probably would need to think on it on a few things, but uh, I think thank you for only, hearing me out and seeing absolutely. what I, yeah. I think the only major thing that I would, I would like to hear addressed perhaps at a later date is um, the degree to which your idea behind engineering fitness seems to be based on uh, human preferences. So humans like things that are big and fast and strong, but I don't see any reason why science should care what things humans find emotionally satisfying in other organisms, except in regards to pets, I guess, you know, human desires for pets are a pretty strong selection pressure on pets. So I'll give it that. Um, but other than that, I, I have trouble figuring out why we should base a scientific measure so strongly on something that seems fundamentally to rely on human psychology rather than anything uh, extrinsic and in the objective universe outside of humanity. Well, if I could just address that briefly, it's the biophysicists that are have added into the discussion. They but the thing making, is, yeah. saying this is what's physically possible isn't a value judgment. But saying this being stronger is more fit seems, now granted, maybe I don't, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems like an emotional value judgment saying okay. this is more fit because it's more of the thing I like. Well, saying think, this is yeah. this this animal can do this physical thing, it's a statement of fact. But once you assign it some kind of fitness value, it sounds like you're making a value judgment, especially since you don't have units that you can use to objectively quantify it. So guys, think, we're at about 45 minutes now. Um, <clears throat> I want Sal to be able to finish his thought here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe if you guys want to continue the exchange for maybe five more minutes or so till we're about at 50 minutes, if you want to. And then at that point, we can either, I don't know if you guys discussed closers. Is that something you guys would We don't really discuss. You want to do like a quick, like three minute closer each or something? We could just do that. 
uh, right now. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I was thinking, Sal, you could go ahead and finish your thought. What you yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right. we go into closures because I I don't want you to feel as if you don't have enough time. Um. So so maybe we'll just I'll let you know in five minutes if if you guys want to continue the discourse for that much longer. Um, and if not, then we'll just let me know when you're ready for closures and, and we'll do that. Otherwise, you guys just continue and uh, I'll let you know. Well, I think as far as emotionalism, we do have, to the extent that their mathematics can be considered beautiful and compelling, we find these things in biology. We find that in biology, there are systems that exceed anything that we can build by several magnitudes. It's, it's bewildering. And the biophysicists are studying it. There's this lecture by William Bialik, uh, either Yale or Princeton professor, National Academy of Science. He is a physicist and he says, you know, biology, it's more, it's more perfect than we imagined. And I found that kind of peculiar that a physicist would weigh in on this discussion when we see so much uh, pain and suffering in the world and disease. And he's yet saying biology is more perfect than we imagine. And I began to look at all the metrics that he uses to make that qualitative uh, assessment. And I, I just invite the readers to look at how this is arrived at. I don't think it's, he, he uses it in terms, I, uh, in terms of physics. I, I referenced it earlier, like geometric optics. There's optimization in geometric optics. There's optimization in sensory organs like uh, magnetic perception, electric perception, it's at the limit. Humans can never do better than that. But um, uh, since this is my closing statement, I, I'll just segue quickly into my closing statement then, if that's okay with you, Dapper. Oh, it's fine. All right. So this is a segue into my closing statement. I read in the Psalms last night that uh, uh, it said, it's a Psalm by Asaph. He said, I will take refuge in you, Lord, so that I may declare your works and so this debate has given me a chance to declare the works of God. That's what I believe. I know that not everyone will agree with that. But when I see that we have machines in biology that exceeds the, the capability of our collectively our best scientists and engineers, that signals to me this was a work of God, uh, that we could take a planet of 8 billion people and put all the resources. We cannot build machines as fabulous as these. And I, 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 I only stumbled upon this uh, lecture by William Bialik, it's uh, available freely on the net, uh, more perfect than we imagined. And you could see what, I, what I'm describing. Unfortunately for me personally, he attributes all this to natural selection and I, I think there's kind of a disconnect. So that's what I feel that uh, you all, and I'd like to thank Dapper, you've given me an opportunity that even though you disagree, in my heart, I feel I've taken refuge in the Lord today and declared the works of God. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Go ahead. Well, I hope, first, I hope you're not taking refuge from me because I, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm someone you have to take refuge from. But um, <laughs> in a more serious vein, um, I, I think what we've seen today is that while there is a really good reason to talk about how well organisms can perform various functions, it is not the same question as how fit they are in these sense that is meant by evolutionary biology and, genetic, and population genetics. And even if you are an anti-evolutionist, uh, population genetics remains a thing. Populations have genetics and you can do statistical analysis on them. And what things are fit is simply a matter of measurement. And while there are difficulties, switching over to some less well-defined and 
even in principle, immeasurable and incomparable version of fitness can only hinder the actual ability of scientists to make predictions, even though sometimes the predictions they do make are not very precise. Um, it is very difficult for me to think that it is a good idea to abandon something that does produce results for something that even in principle, it's hard to see how it could. Um, now, I do still want to talk about things like, you know, how fast cheetahs can run and how well sharks can sense uh, the electrical impulses of their prey's muscle and how well an eagle can see and things like that. Those are great. I love all that stuff. If you've seen any of my content, you know, I always go off on tangents about how cool some animal is because of some amazing ability it has. I mean, or how cute velvet worms can be. I mean, come on. It's basically a superpower. True. Those so, are <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I knew I would get Erica with that one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those are, those are really important conversations to have in biology, but it's just not this conversation. And I feel like we need to be wary about conflating different aspects of biology, especially when it still feels like this attempt to redefine, um, fitness is in service to a hypothesis that has already failed, which is genetic entropy. Um, and yeah, that is basically where I will leave it. Oh man. Awesome. I, I think this was an incredibly fruitful conversation. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Honestly, there really and truly, and I know this is like mega dorky, but there's almost nothing I enjoy more than these kind of conversation, these kinds of conversations that are, are so civil and are genuinely an exchange of uh, perspectives and new information. I, I've learned quite a bit myself, which is always. Oh, wait, we, it's too civil. We have to be mean for a second. Sal, <laughs> Your your room is far too green and it's terrible. Sal, far too green. Hit back, Sal. Come on. I'm go. I'm going mod gloves off. Get him. <laughs> Sorry, it's just not me. Okay, I'll, I'll do it for you. Just, just, you know, the only time I would ever get mad and just kind of go berserk and I might get thrown in jail is one guy uh -oh. was just. Uh, he was doing some things that were threatening my mom. Mm. And I was yeah, just another no, no, guy. Okay. So you crossed the line, bud. But see, so, so it, it's so easy. You could just say, you know, your tie is a stupid shade of blue dapper, or I hate your Godzilla poster. See? I was, gonna, I was going to come for the top hat dapper. The top hat? Yeah, it is. No, no, I'm, I'm going to just refer you to Smokey Saint. He'll do a better job. I, I just, <laughs> you know. Sal, that's blazing tonight. Okay. Ooh, that's well, a little unsmoky. I, I am so excited for some of these super chats. Some of them are, um, and, and general chats as well. You know, Praise has done a great job collecting them. We've got them all in the side chat. Some are general statements, some are questions. Um, and as is typical for how James kind of, kind of runs the channel and kind of how I how I like it as well, um, if the question is for one individual, the other one is is fine to weigh in as far as I'm concerned. But I think that the, or the person the question was asked to should get the final word on the question. That's um, fair. And so, so we'll jump right into it. So first of all, for $2 from Schrodinger's cat, Dapper, they say, you know, what's up. Schrodinger's cat says Dapper Dino knows what's up. So there you go, Dapper. That's, that's a nice compliment to start things off. Well, uh, thank you. I myself got a few super chats and I, I think it was because of all this, <laughs> the kindness that the two of you were, um, were hoisting upon me. Um, against my wishes. <laughs> so the first is from Sphincter of Doom for $5, and then also from Mark Reed for $5, and they both congratulated me on being engaged. 
Um, Sphincter of Doom says, what was all that one in a million talk? Which I think is a compliment. So thank you, Sphincter of Doom. And it's, it's a Dumb and Dumber reference. Ah, there it is. Yeah, you know what? It's been so long since I've actually seen Dumb and Dumber. So ah. I, look at me. I'm, I'm a mess. I got to get on it. Also, so uh, I just Sphincter of Doom. He's a Navy buddy of mine. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. Okay, awesome. Actually, I think I've, I think we've, um, I think maybe I've engaged with, with that person before, perhaps on your channel, but I, I appreciate that. Awesome. Very, very kind gestures. I was saying in the chat, one of these days, I'm going to drag my fiance into one of these moderation things and force him to engage <laughs> with people that, that I engage with on the regular. Um, from Ingwe Himawari, which I, I, I'm almost certainly butchering, but I hope not, for $10, a question for Dapper Dinosaur. How do you personally feel about the hypothetical conclusion that human reproduction is a net harm and that uh, and that if that's true, then we should cease to reproduce as a species and effectively end humanity? I mean, I, I guess the first thing is a net harm to what? Um, for me, I'm sort of a um, sort of like philosophically anthropocentric. I, I think that since, I, you know, most of us are human, uh, that Ultimately, things like human flourishing should be our, our long-term goal. And um, I think that generally speaking, uh, having a healthy environment and high biodiversity tends to help with human flourishing more than it tends to harm it. And so I, I can see arguments as to why we might want to limit the amount that humans reproduce. I don't see any good reason that we should say that humans should simply go extinct for the sake of other organisms. If it comes down to humans or other organisms, like, and it's literally a binary choice, I tend to side humans. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. From Does Sal want anything? Yeah, I, I figured Sal would, or oh. I figured the other person would jump in if they wanted to, but no, no pressure, Sal. You, you don't have to. But just I just want to make sure we don't uh, skip over in, in case yeah, you do. That's fair yeah. enough. That's fair enough. Will Provine, the evolutionary, the uh, <clears throat> famous professor of evolutionary biology, said that uh, in two billion years, all life on Earth will be extinct. So fitness is going to go to zero. All this will be moved. No, oh, a little existential dread for us. This evening. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> okay, from, uh, from David Neff, this is a question for Sal. Can you think of a structure that is not irreducibly complex? Yes, there are plenty of them. Uh, I, I see them all the time. Uh, and uh, like collagen, collagen... Uh, it can a few parts of it can be compromised, and secondly, there are systems that are uh, like uh, that are robust, uh, like um, uh, it was an experiment conducted by I'm trying to remember her name is Brenda Andrews. Yeah, Bre I think it was Brenda Andrews. She's a Canadian researcher. She was taking yeast and doing knockout experiments, and she could knock out all these single knockout genes. And it's like the organism was fine. The moment that you knock out a second gene, uh, things went wrong. So there, she clearly demonstrated you have systems where you can knock out one gene and uh, the organism is able to survive. So the analogy to this is with space shuttles, they have five redundant, uh, see now you know how much I love aerospace. They have five redundant navigation systems. If four of them are knocked out, as long as there's one remaining, it will continue. And we see many, many of these things in biology. And I've actually argued, I said, irreducible complexity is only one of the problems. If we have anything that is redundant, that's a more severe problem because it's not as easily visible to selection. And there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of robustness and 
there's a lot of robustness and redundancy in biology uh, that makes it not quite so sensitive to um, these uh, damaging perturbations and mutations, but that actually creates another set of problems for natural selection. So nice to see you, David. Thank you for being my friend. We love <laughs> classical music together and Ooh, I, hey, I found I like another kindred spirit. So absolutely. Um, briefly, if you want to answer or to comment on that as well, Dapper, you're welcome to, but before my, you do, um, oh. there is uh, SJ Thompson in the chat would, has offered to uh, have you on her channel. If you like Sal, they, uh, she wants to know how she can reach out to you. If you have a public email wow. um, or, or however, however would be easiest for her to get in touch with you. SJ, um, I feel, I feel insulted that you didn't offer me the same. <laughs> Oh, well, no, it's fine. So, That's my invitation. Come on. Um, <laughs> does anyone have asked? She, I believe she is uh, tied to this channel as one of the regular moderators for the chat. I want to thank uh, S.J. Tomlinson for her service. So I really do want to get a hold. Um, I think I think James. Let me let me give a throw. Email. Can I give a throwaway email just for this purpose? Because my regular email is getting just spammed to death. Oh, whatever. Can I put that in the private chat? Yeah, whatever so, you want to uh, do. We'll, we'll find a way to to get it to her for sure. If you put it in the private chat, you can just put in a regular one, and I, we won't share it. We can just make sure it gets just to SJ. Oh, okay. So I, I just put in uh, an email so you can reach out to me. And uh, thank you. I'm very flattered, and that's very kind of you. Um, so my only comment on the, the irreducible complexity thing is that um, irreducible complexity simply isn't a barrier to natural selection. Uh, it's multiple ways to uh, evolve through natural selection. Uh, what wouldn't meet uh, Behe's definition for uh, irreducible complexity are known. They occur. It's really not a problem. It's just kind of a weird trope in uh, certain areas of uh, creationism that this is a problem. And I, I have something to share with David Neff. I don't know if you can paste it. I don't have a means of pasting it. This is the Brenda Andrews. I mentioned the name Brenda Andrews. The talk. So, so you'll get your fill of examples of non-irreducible complexity if you visit that lab. She has, these are real experiments uh, that, that showed many systems in biology are not, are not irreducibly complex. And yeah, that's I just agree. one thing I want to point out with creationists. Sometimes when I call them out on something that they're not phrasing quite right, they just think I'm a traitor. I'm just like, dude, I'm trying to help you. You know, <laughs> it's like, quit, quit using those arguments like second law thermodynamics. Just ah, that drop is a, it. That's a classic. That is a classic one. I have yet to find someone who's used the second law thermodynamics argument who's been able to tell me the units for entropy. Mm, yeah. Which, that's as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to use a scientific law and you can't tell joules. me what units, and it's not quite joules. Joules, joules are in for there. Kelvin. Yes, joules, joules for, for Kelvin. Kelvin. There you go. And See, you can, con you can convert it to uh, bits actually with Boltzmann's constant. Uh, I studied statistical mechanics and thermodynamics nice. at graduate school because. Which is I was why interested you know it's in it, and I decided the evolutionists were right on this one. So yeah, see, there you go. It's, it's hard to use that that argument while also understanding oh, even the most I, basic stuff about. Okay, I'll give you a freebie here. Okay. Uh oh. You just ask them what has more entropy: a warm living human or a frozen dead rat? Oh, Ooh. I like that. A warm living human has substantially more entropy than a frozen dead rat for the simple reason you just take the. Uh, the amount of water in a human, and there's a standard molar entropy based on the yeah. number of moles. Pretty easy. And just yep. like, how could the ID and creationist community have swallowed this? It's so obvious. And so, well, sorry to point thoughts, that out. Okay. I don't think we should, we should probably continue love, on. 
this is tough love for the community of my own family. I mean, no, how it is the it. family, it's really hard to just kind of say, hey, you screwed up, you know. I'm on your side, but you screwed up. You know, it's just really kind of, oh. it's like, I don't want to be the one to do it. I'm oh, having to man. be the one. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough one too. Cause you know, when the, the process of owning when you're wrong about something is like one of the hardest things to do in the yeah. world. I, I, God, I know it's, it's, it's tough for me. So, but um, we'll, we'll hop in, we'll go ahead and hop into the next super chat before we get into an, an entirely new discussion and keep everyone here for the rest of the night um, from, <laughs> Uh, from RJ Downard for Sal, was the autism spectrum designed in humans? And if not, how and when did it arrive according to your model? Yes, I believe it was designed in the sense that uh, when we say biology is intelligent, okay, so intelligent design is like Bailey's watch. We just believe things are designed because they're like machines. But then we had the problem of evil. And so creationism says we're intelligently designed and cursed, but a curse is actually a design too. So uh, let me try to honor RJ's question. If not, so I said, um, so I guess the rest is moot. Uh, was autism spectrum designed? And so, yes. And he said, if not, how and when did it arrive according to your model? So I, I'd say that the curse um, of Adam and Eve, when that happened is, is when all these bad things happened and our genome started to get more vulnerable and autism spectrum started to, to set in as our DNA just started acquiring more mutations and inability to repair. That's that's not strictly a scientific question. That's more of uh, on the theological. So that's um, that's about as best as I could do, RJ. So that that's my opinion. If people ask, well, did all these bad things happen? It's, was it designed? I'd, uh, a lot of people will not like me saying yes, but if you, you know, again, this is theological. If you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of pretty well-designed punishments for people. Let's say that, um, uh, and, and I know it, uh, it really a lot of people left Christianity because they've read the Old Testament. It's just a little bit too hard to take, and on many levels, I get that. Uh, just. Just for the audience sake, you know, I don't want to trivialize suffering. There is a guy in my church that has worse than autism spectrum. He has a neural degenerative disease. He's probably terminally ill. Um, his sister has it. His father died of it. And so there's a lot of tragedy going around. So I, I don't want to be just flippant and say, yeah, God designed this. It's, it's with great grief that I say, yeah, I think um, God designed curses on humanity and um that's one of the tougher things of being a creationist. On many levels, I wish I were wrong. Um, it'd be preferable to think all this was an accident. So thanks for the question, RJ. I don't really have oh, anything thank to you add. For the answer. Yeah, I think that was um, that was comprehensive for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, from Caleb for $2, great debate. And then Caleb also says that they would love to see myself in Standing for Truth in another debate as if three debates weren't enough for you, Caleb. You're a glutton for that kind of content, I suppose. Um, I would love to debate standing again. I've, I've posed some questions to standing. I would love to hear an answer to, to some or, or all of them. And the second that I do, I'm open for more conversations of the channel. Um, for, let's see, okay, from Creo Debunk, uh, elephant gene, let's see, this is, this is a, a bit oddly worded. I'm afraid I might mess this up. So elephant gene, what kills cancer cells is duplicated lots of times. 
why has a designer not duplicated it for you? Okay, so they're referring to the the, the elephant genes, which uh, essentially protect against tumor growth. And they're asking why this has not been duplicated in humans if, if there's a designer. I suppose that would be for cell. Yes, this is, this is one of the deep questions about uh, design problems, because it's obvious God could have created us to live forever, and he's ordained that we, we die. And so that's part of the curse. Uh, one thing I will point out is that um, I do suspect that um, our, our genome and whatever else makes cells uh, live probably was in a lot better state many, many years ago. That's a, that's, that, that's a speculation. I'm, I don't have any experiments to prove it. Uh, cancer, just as a total aside, cancer is an interesting thing, uh, kind of in a sad way, but we found some immortal cells through this process, and it kind of gave me the thought that, yeah, maybe we were designed to live forever, but then things had fallen apart. And so I do think that there is a record of Christian theology in our genome in that we see design, but then also a curse at the same time. So trying to answer your question as best as I can, and I apologize if I don't answer it as directly as you would want. I think God withheld certain things from us uh, so that we would die, that we would be in need of a savior. And to that, just to close out a thought, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this momentary light affliction is building for us a way to glory so that people that believe in Jesus Christ, uh, the ones who suffer from cancer, like some people in my church and have passed away, um, that's part of the happy ending, the story. Every every great work of literature that has a happy ending and a tragedy in the, in the middle. So that's more of a philosophical, theological answer, uh, not a scientific one. Oh, I actually do have a little bit of something to add to that. Um, this explanation where we have, um, on the one hand, we have anti-evolutionists going on about the amazing design of, you know, uh, say the human brain or shark electrosensors to pick one that I know Sal likes. But then on the other hand, when they're asked about these obviously suboptimal in terms of what is this engineering fitness uh, aspects of biology, uh, those get hand waved away as uh, the result of a curse. And I think that's just having your cake and eating it too. You gotta, you gotta make a stand. Does the designer do good work or does he do bad work? And if every time you see bad work, you just hand wave away and say, curse, I can't disprove you. But all I will say is you've removed your idea of design from falsifiability or testability. Therefore, it is not useful in science, and science must continue as if your design hypothesis did not exist. Uh, that's all I have there. All right, cool. It, it was a question for Sal. So, Sal, if you want to round it off, you're certainly, that's well, certainly something you're entitled to. Having been in the defense department, and we also study biological warfare, uh, cruel designs are sadly not anything that are, uh, th that escape our notice. And, and, and so, I think it's perfectly legitimate if we also argue that there is a curse that was also well-designed. And uh, I think Creo debunked did point something out, is that it works really well in elephants, but there's nothing like that in humans. That's telling me that that was a design that was withheld from humans to kind of maybe humble them, and it is part of the curse. So uh, I, although I do respect uh, Dapper Dino's point, and I, I think there are workarounds at it, but I, I'd like to just move forward. And that's probably a conversation for another day and something that I need to chew on because it is, uh, I, I think, a very um, pointed objection. So thank you.
You're welcome. I think it'd be a super interesting conversation to listen to. Um, so from Jonathan Kelso for $10, something uh, additionally very kind for, for me as well. So I appreciate this, Jonathan. They say, I have to I'm a new fan of the Gutsy Gibbon channel. I've been choosing uh, her long videos over movies lately, still trying to get Gutsy and Chill to catch on awesome work, Erica. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I myself now would love for that to catch on, although knowing the implications for Netflix and Chill, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, <laughs> I I'm, I'm think that might boost my channel ratings up to PG-13. Um, but thank you, Jonathan. I, I do very much appreciate that. Um, from Ingwe uh, Himawari, again, for $5 for Dapper Dinosaur, who assigned the reproductive fitness value to evolution, if not humans? Why doesn't human preference apply to reproductive fitness too? Um, could you repeat that? I'm, I feel like I might not have understood that completely. Yeah, sure. Who assigned reproductive fitness value to evolution, if not humans? Why doesn't human preference apply to reproductive fitness too? Well, so as far as who assigned this definition of fitness, um, ultimately, it's simply what matters in evolution in, in the long run. The only thing that's going to tell you what the genetics of a population are going to be like in the future is who's reproducing to what and to what degree now. So it's it's sort of like asking who assigned length to our measurement of distance. It's like that's what you're measuring. If you want to measure who's going to end up, who, what genes are going to end up predominating in the future, you have to measure reproductive success. So there really isn't a person who assigned this. I'm sure there was a first person to come up with it, um, but it's hard to imagine a different way that you could actually measure fitness and then still have it be a useful measurement that you can use to make calculations and predictions. So yeah, it's it's just sort of like who, who assigned temperature to thermodynamics? Well, reality did. It's something right. you have to measure if you want to talk about this. Sorry, yeah. No, no, awesome. And there was a second um, part of that. Like or not, no problem. I, th I think that was reasonably accurate. That's all I have to say. Oh, cool. Hey, we agree. Oh, goodness. Hey, there you go. So, so that's the last super chat that we've got. Um, I again, you know, I can't say this enough. I found this to be incredibly enjoyable. Uh, for those of you out there who, you know, got nothing to do this evening and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I really wish that this would go on for another two hours. Uh, there's good news for you, because both Sal and Dapper Dinosaur are hosting after shows on their respective channels. So you can Absolutely. go to those after shows and revel in more discussion, uh, which is which is just going to be superb. I, I certainly will be uh, attending. So by all means, um, please, if, if you guys want to say anything else, and then I'll do James's classic ending tagline. Um, just thanks for being here, I guess. Yeah, i um, Go, ahead, oh, go on, go on, Dapper. Okay, fine, I'll go. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you to Agatha Gibbon. Praise I am that I am for producing, which that has, I'm bad at that, so I always appreciate when someone else takes that away from me. <laughs> um, and I especially want to say thank you to Sal. Um, Sal and I have had, you know, off-air conversations, and we get along pretty well, and I really appreciate that. And um, so, yeah, I, I really want to say thank you for coming and having a conversation that was intelligent and that actually involved listening to the, your opponent's points and did not involve absurd straw men because I don't know if you saw my debate from Friday, but it was essentially the opposite of this. I I didn't see it. Uh, maybe I should now. <laughs> well, let's just um, say as as nice and polite and willing to listen to me as you were, Alex was the exact opposite. Um, just a few technical things. Um, I want to thank 
the people who recently subscribed. I got seven new subscribers on my channel. Awesome. Uh, I'll point out a, um, you should be able to find the after show, but I have to do some technical things because I'm running the after show uh, to get it started. So it might be just a little bit delayed. I want to thank everyone who's come out here. And then uh, let me highlight one thing. If you go to, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, channel, you can go to evidence, www.evidenceandreasons.org, and then you can go to my YouTube channel. Um, I did give a talk about um, my life story that was actually reported in the prestigious scientific journal Nature in 2005, which I consider a miracle of God that uh, Nature would want to cover my life, a little bit of my life story. So that's just a highlight. That's just a, a shameless plug for my channel. So uh, that's about it. And uh, thank you, Erica. And thank you, Praise. Thank you, Dapper. Uh, I, I, I wish you all a wonderful holiday season. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And take care and God bless you. Superb. Okay, guys, I, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I totally glitched out and dropped from the stream for a minute there. So I'm glad you guys held down the fort for me while I was um, okay, well, if, I think that's that. Thanks again, everybody, for being here. Check out these guys' after, after shows. Uh, subscribe to them and subscribe to Modern Day Debate. Like everything, hit all the bells, and get all of the notifications for all three. And don't forget to keep sifting out the reasonable when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.